Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. That's what we're talking about, heroin. (laughs) Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter, episode 3.6. I finally got an excuse to play the Velvet Underground's heroin on one of our shows. That's the whole reason we're doing this series (laughs) on the war on drugs, Ray, just so I can play a bit of Velvet Underground. How are you, buddy? Doing okay. Mission accomplished. It was... That was... uh, Fucking uh, Lou on guitar and John P- Kale just playing uh, viola uh, up. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. So, but thank you for yeah, the yeah. quality control. I appreciate that. For it's good. It's good. Good thing. So heroin, big H, heroin baby, China White, the big Black H, char, brown sugar, Mexican mud, skunk, and good old smack. Hell dust, horse. And, of course, opium, the black spice, which heroin comes from. You can inject it, you can sniff it, you can snort it, you can smoke it, you can mix it with crack cocaine, a.k.a. speedballing, um, which is what you told me we were doing in (laughs) Vegas. Uh, You said, I want a speedball. I thought, great, we're going to get some heroin and crack, but that's not what you meant. You just meant 
We've only got a couple of minutes. Let's get the this look on of for our wives' catches. The look of surprise on your face. Hey, just real quick, I I didn't know this. So, on the West Coast, a lot of a lot of uh, heroin comes in sticky black tar version. But on the East Coast, uh, we like we seem to like the more white powder like version uh, of heroin. So I didn't know that. You know, each each coast has its own uh, drug preference. I thought that was kind of cool. Did not know that yeah. either. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about heroin. Heroin enters the brain quickly and binds to the opioid receptors on cells, which are located in lots of different areas, especially those parts of the brain that have to do with feelings of pain and pleasure, uh, and also the parts of the brain that control heart rate, sleeping, and breathing. People who use heroin report a feeling of a rush and a surge of pleasure and euphoria. And unlike cocaine, heroin has a lot of really great pro-heroin songs. (laughs) Like that one I just mentioned, I just played by the Velvet Underground, written by Lou Reed in the mid-60s. Some songs you may not realise are pro-heroin. Golden brown texture like sun Lays me down with my mind She runs throughout the night Never a frown with golden brown. Always thought that was about a girl with a really good tan. Yeah. No, apparently it's about apparently it's about heroin. This one is obviously about heroin. Lexington, one, two, five. The sick and dirty are more dead than alive. I'm waiting for my man. Or more about scoring heroin. This.
Got to stop playing that. I'm going to go to sleep. This. Hypnotizing chickens. Well, I'm just a modern guy. Well, I had it in the ear before. That lustful life. Lustful life. I got lustful life. <laughs> Fuck, what a riff. What a fucking riff. All those riffs, those songs, the greatest. That that mellow, oh. the mellow one. You made me. That one. I was about to light up. So I'm glad you. Yeah. I'm glad you. Because I was going for it. I was going for it. I, I did. You don't even smoke drugs, but that song makes you want to smoke drugs, doesn't did, it? Comfortably did numb my you. cigar and something. Yeah. I, I did not know, no. and, I, and I'll let you. I'll let you take it from here. But I did not know that opium. <laughs> Heroin's oldest ancestor is believed to have been discovered in a wild poppy fields in the eastern Mediterranean mountains during the Neolithic age between 10,200 BC and 2000 BC. Obviously, it spread to, to India and China from there, but this stuff in some form has been around for quite some time. Yeah, opium or poppy seeds uh, from which opium comes looks like it's been part of human society since fucking everywhere, right? <laughs> since since everywhere and since the dawn of time. Humans and getting fucked up on drugs go together. In fact, yes. I, I tend to think that uh, the rise of human civilization has a lot to do with drugs. Mm-hmm. That it was the smoking of drugs that probably when somebody got really fucking high on poppy seeds once and went, you know what? We should walk on two legs. Imagine that. Imagine if we walked on two legs and started making tools for shit. Fire! Fuck! Imagine what we could do with that. The wheel. Yeah. Oh. Well, that was my favorite one. Someone got high and said, you know, those square wheels, they're just not cutting it. I think we can do better. I gotta cut the gotta cut the corners off my wheels. Yeah, see what. Let me finish this blunt first. Hold on. Okay, chisel, chisel me. Opium, opium comes from the seed of the poppy plant Papaver somniferum. Ooh. 
and it, it's been found in lots of archaeological sites. The Bat Cave in Spain, um, which is where uh, Bruce Wayne first set up shop before moving to Gotham sure. later in his career. For some reason, my notes say is where Bruce Wayne <laughs> first set up shop. I must have been so fucking high on heroin when I wrote these notes. Bruce B R U T H W E W N Bruce Wen. That was his Spanish name, he was Bruce Wen. <laughs> that was because his Castilian uh, maybe that's name. The, yeah. Maybe that's actually what I, maybe I was writing a gag when I wrote that. <laughs> Bruce Wen. Hello. My name is Bruce Wen. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I am Batman. Uh he changed his name to Bruce Wayne when he got to Gotham City. I'm American. Um, well, fucking come to think of it, <laughs> Batman is pretty much based on Zorro. Right. Zorro is Spanish, so, you know, kind of all well, makes sense now. Yeah. Anyway, poppy seeds in the Batcave have been carbon dated to 4200 BC. <clears throat> the first known cultivation of poppies was in Mesopotamia about 3400 BCE. So pretty much the first thing that early humans did when they made it to the Fertile Crescent was to start growing drugs. They had the right priorities. They were like, and let's be honest, if you just spent the last 50,000 years walking from Africa to Iraq, yeah, yeah. you deserve to get fucking high to celebrate. I tell Talk you, like... If, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that literally the first thing that humans did... You know, they were like, hey, shouldn't we, somebody said, shouldn't we plant some, I don't know, olives or or, or grain or yeah. something? They're like, yeah, yeah, you're like, we'll get to the food. Let's grow the drugs first. Trust me. Just, just, just hear me out on this. You're going to want to get the drugs first. Right. There are tablets that have been found at Nippa, uh, the Sumerian spiritual center of South uh, Baghdad, South of Baghdad. Sure which described the collection of poppy juice in the morning and its use and production of opium. Oh, the Sumerians called it the joy plant. <laughs> so it was a big part of human spirituality mm-hmm. going right back to the dawn of recorded history. People were smoking drugs to get high and have sex with gods and goddesses. They got a lot of work done, too, I um, imagine, just working for days until you collapse, getting shit done. Good for them. Do you know what the Sumerians' second favorite thing was after opium? No. What? Conan, <laughs> what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear a lamentation of their women. That is good. Sorry, that was the Sumerians. Conan was a Sumerian, yeah. not a Sumerian. I get those confused all the time. Opium was also sometimes used with hemlock uh-huh. as a way to put people to death, but quickly and painlessly. Uh-huh. So it was like a form of euthanasia. If you were old and sick, right. they would give you the opium, which would put you to sleep, and then some hemlock, which would kill you, of course, um, Socrates style. Yeah. Um, but it was also used in medicine. The Ebers papyrus which dates somewhere around 1500 BCE, describes a way to stop crying, stop a crying child yeah. by grinding poppy plant into a pulp and then straining it and uh, giving it to a baby. Just puts them on your finger, so rubbing against their gums, boom. The house is suddenly quiet. And I, 
I feel guilty for giving Fox melatonin at night to try and get him to go to fuck to sleep, to go to bed. I, where I could just be giving him opium. Um, sponges were soaked in opium and used during surgery. Uh, the Egyptians cultivated opium in 1300 BCE and then traded it around the Mediterranean to places like Greece and Carthage and across Europe. Wow. In 1100 BCE, opium was cultivated on Cyprus mm-hmm. where they used surgical quality knives to score the poppy pods. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen them do that, but you no. get the poppy pod, which is like a little golf ball, mm-hmm. and you, uh, you 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 do a cross. You you mark a cross. You walk down. You grab each pod. You mark a cross on it. Right. Carve a little cross into it, and that enables the uh, juices to drip out of it. And then you collect the juices, oh. and that's where you get your opium juice from. Um, and it was traded all over the ancient world. It's uh, mentioned after the Persian conquest of Assyria and Babylon uh, in the 6th century BCE. Mm. So my point here is that drugs have a long history, particularly opium, a long <laughs> history with humans. People have been using drugs forever. It's not a new thing. Uh, and it's also had a lot of ritual uses as well. A- anthropologists... Have theories that ancient priests may have used the drug not only to com- to, to, to have visions right. and to communicate with the gods, but also to prove that they had healing power. Somebody can be go, doc, you know, priest, uh, what do they call witch doctor? I, I've got a pain, a really bad pain in my stomach. He goes, uh, all right, I'm going to uh, I'm going to pray to the gods to heal you, and uh, while I'm doing that, you just smoke this pipe. <laughs> Here, smoke on this and while I pray to the gods. Your prayer um, worked. I feel great. I, I would like to take it one step further. I would think that there would have been no gods imagined until someone took their first hit, and that's when the first god was seen or heard. Yeah, well, I've talked before on one of the fucking shows. I don't know if this one, one of the other ones. You know, I think the, the concept of gods really started... Um, when agriculture started, or even maybe even before that, when we were hunters and gatherers, but you, because people didn't understand the seasons, they didn't understand uh, 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 other climactic conditions that could cause crops to disappear mm-hmm. or the herds of animals to disappear or not be where they're supposed to be or to die suddenly of disease or whatever. People didn't understand disease. So... Yeah, you know, we didn't. We didn't have a, 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 a an organic um, uh, understanding of organic uh, uh, causes of diseases, bacteria, right. viruses, all that kind of stuff. So, when the crop didn't grow, or, or, or there were, you, you went to your normal apple orchard that was all you know just grew by itself, and 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 the, all the apples were dead because of some fucking disease got to them. You go, oh, the god, the apple god must be angry with us, or or the the cow god, or the the herd god. Right. We, humans started to anthropomorphize their their flora and fauna. Um, somebody came up with the idea: well, there must be a, a, a god that if the gods are happy with us, they give us these things to eat, and if they're not happy with us, they take them away. And then eventually, they looked up and they noticed the stars, and they started to realize that there was a connection between the sun and the moon and the stars and the seasons. 
but they didn't understand that it was just the earth turning. So they go, well, you know, there are times when these big things in the sky are happy with us and they give us lots of food. And other times they're unhappy with us and the snow comes and things die and they we starve and we die in the fucking cold and then they're happy with us again. And, and then that sort of led to the winter solstice and the death of the gods in, in December 25th in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the lowest point of the sun, it's the coldest, it's the death of the sun god, and then it starts to get stronger again three days later, which is why Jesus and other gods spend three days in hell sure. or they would get you know resurrected after three days, this whole thing. So, they, yeah, there was this gradual progression of anthropomorphization of of gods, agriculture gods, then solar and, and lunar and, and star-based deities, sky-based deities. And and then it sort of progressed from there, I but, think, until we go, oh, no, yeah. they fucking walk among us. Oh, I just saw a guy over there. He said he was a god. It's got at the party. So, but we know that the solar gods aren't real. We know the lunar gods aren't real. We know the, besides Aquaman, the sea gods aren't real. I mean, why couldn't we keep that thinking going and just get rid of all of our gods? But Some of us did, Ray. Some of us did. That's true. That's true. I meant humanity in general, yeah. but I see your point. Because we're dumb. We're dumb, Ray. Dumb. We're, humans we're are dumb. Drugs. A lot okay. of humans are dumb. Back to Egypt. Um, Now, in Egypt, opium was generally restricted to priests and magicians and warriors. They said it was invented by Thoth, uh, who was a god often depicted as a man with the head of an ibis or a baboon. Sure. And if that's not a reason to get fucked up, I don't know what is. (laughs) Imagine you wake up one morning, you've got the head of an ibis. You go, okay, all right, I can live with this. Or bin chickens, as we call them here. Because um, they hang around bins and try and steal food out of bins and then try and steal your food too if you're eating anywhere near them in Ibis. You go to sleep that night, you wake up the next day, you got the head of a baboon. You go, what the? Is this a fucking Kafka story? What is going I gotta, on? I got to make I some get, <laughs> I got to get fucked up. Take some drugs, man. Uh, by the way, how awesome is it that the Egyptians had a religion that said, sure, our gods gave us drugs because they love us and want to feel good. Instead of this Judeo-Christian shit trying to make you feel Guilt. guilty for wanting to yeah. rub one out on your sister's tits, the no. Egyptians said, no, the gods want you to get fucked up and have lots of oh. sex. That's Go go knock one out. Sure, she's That's your sister. It's okay. Right, right, right. Yeah. And the Egyptians said... It. They embraced uh, it. They said that Isis gave Ra opium as treatment for a headache. He said, not now, honey, I've got a headache. She says, shut the fuck up, take a hit of this, then get your clothes off and come and run one out in my tits. So, I mean, the fuck, the Egyptians had it worked out, man. I love it. That's the kind of religion I want to be part of. One that's pro-drugs and (laughs) pro-sex. The Minoans had a goddess of narcotics. She had a crown of three opium poppies. This is around 1300 BCE. Mm -hmm. The Greek gods of Hypnos, Nyx, and Thanatos were depicted with poppy wreaths or holding them. Uh, Hypnos for sleep, Nyx for night, and Thanatos for death. Um, Greeks also quite often had poppies on the statues of Apollo, Asclepius, Pluto, Demeter, Aphrodite, and Kybele. 
Uh, by the way, congratulations to Pluto on becoming a planet again uh, recently. Might, mighty fucking effort there, Pluto. Golf clap for Pluto. Pluto was down and out for about 10 years, but Came Pluto never gave in. Yeah. Pluto's a little fighter. Always liked that about Pluto. Just stuck in there. It's like the little engine that could. Pluto just said, I think I can be a planet. I think I can be a planet. And he got there. So well, cheers to Pluto. I, I was a part of that. I had a big boom box from the 80s, and I played that song. Um, for, uh, shoot, was it John Cusack holding over his head? And I pointed it at Pluto. But anyway, yeah, so... What song? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> you in fucking your eyes. About? In your eyes. So, anyways, what's it, that got to do in with my Pluto eyes? It was always planets. a planet, and I supported it, <laughs> and now it's back. That makes no sense. I know at all. it made sense in my head, and then when it I came, I live out, in a van down by the river. <laughs> in 460 BCE, Hippocrates, mm-hmm. the father of medicine. Uh, acknowledged the use of narcotic uh, for treating internal diseases mm. and diseases of women. Uh, you got a, what's, what's your problem, sir? <laughs> I've got a woman. Oh, yeah, take, take this. Take uh, Then, of course, our old mate Alexander the Great introduced opium to the people of Persia and India. Mm. Yeah, the, the, Greeks, the Greeks carried it with them. It was you know, good for lots of things. Right. Pain relief, obviously, yeah. and getting fucked up. Um, it was introduced to China then by Arab traders in the 5th century CE. Wow. Now, the Chinese, the China and opium, you know, Chinese opium dens, opium is often associated these days with China, so we, we need to talk a little bit about how that came to be. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the Greeks had it. Uh, the Greeks under Alexander took it to Persia and India, and, and so then the Arabs... Later on, right. took it to China, and then the Chinese uh, went, oh, fuck it, this is good shit. <laughs> Chinese have been using opium for medicinal purposes since about the 7th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of became a very popular thing. It was used generally throughout Chinese uh, society, particularly by the aristocracy. Uh, 800 years later, in the mid-15th century, one Chinese scholar wrote, it is mainly used to treat masculinity, strengthen sperm, and regain vigor. It enhances the art of alchemists, sex, and court ladies. Yes. Frequent use helps to cure the chronic diarrhea that causes the loss of energy. Its price equals that of gold. Nice. Sounds like Mm. you need some opium, Ray. Well, if, if you can not um, mention my diarrhea to everybody, I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> I mostly meant sex and the energy and the playing with puppies. Don't takes you, it out of you. Maybe you need some opium. Yeah, takes a lot out of me. Yeah. Now, what I didn't know was that in... Okay, so that was the Ming Dynasty 368 to 1644 when they were using it for that. But in the 17th century, they started the practice of mixing opium with tobacco for the smoking. And the smoking, obviously, with the opium was very popular and it spread throughout Southeast Asia, which only increases the demand for this. Yeah, so it becomes a bit of a problem. And by the early 1700s, the I think it was a Ming emperor, uh, sorry, Qing. It was the Qing dynasty. Right. Chinese emperor banned opium. Yeah. So by the early 1700s. 
he said, nah, so this is like 200 years before it gets banned in um, England and America. Right. The Chinese emperor banned. He said, no, no, this is bad shit, man, bad shit. Yeah. So, yeah, in 17... Yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, after you. I apologize. No, just you. Just to what you were saying. Seventeen twenty nine. Emperor Yung Chung criminalized the smoking part of the opium because at the time, roughly two hundred chests of opium were coming into China. But that's about to go way, way up for different for different reasons. And in seventeen ninety three, and I'll stop with this part. The East India Company was about twenty eight million pounds in debt. There was only one way to try to rectify that debt was, and that was the sale of opium. So British merchants got involved, and, and there was a whole triangle of tea and silver and opium, but that was the only way they could they could get out of this debt. And London, in general, is good with it because the Chinese would only accept silver for payments, and everybody in Britain loved all these various things that were coming from China. So it worked out well for those in London. It worked out for the British merchants. Didn't work out so well for the Chinese people who were addicted to opium. Yeah, the British basically were the first major drug barons of the world. <laughs> That's so and, true. And a lot of a lot of the wealth of the British Empire yeah. during its heyday came from drug trade. They were basically drug dealers. Yeah, on a massive um, scale. Mm. And they would bring it in from India. Basically, the British were the original drug kingpins. They were the Escobars. The original Escobars <laughs> were the British. <laughs> And it was brought in from India. So opium was essentially the commodity which financed the British Raj in India. Yeah. Now, there was a long history of opium use in India as well. The uh, Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan, who's the guy who built the Taj Mahal, right. drank opium with his wine and decorated the Taj Mahal with poppies for <sighs> his wife. Another Mughal emperor, Humayun, was an opium addict who apparently just didn't spend time with his harem or his wives. He just spent all day getting fucked up. It's good to be the king. Um, I like I like this story about Humayun. Um, apparently, he used to he got that name because they used to. He's going, I am not an animal. I am a human. And he was fucked up on opium, and they couldn't understand. They said, oh, we'll just call him Humayun. Anyway, he was um, he was consulting with some astrologers sure. on the roof of his palace in Delhi in 1556, uh, and then fell down. No. He was walking down. He fell down some stairs oh. and died from a head injury after taking a lot of opium. Is how he died. Well, at least he didn't feel pain. Um, so good for him. There you go. There's always that. Um, by a th- by the year 1000, opium was being grown and eaten and drunk in India by all classes as a basic household remedy. Right. Uh, but the, in the 1700s, when the British took control of India, they obviously took over opium production as well. Now, at the time, the Portuguese found that they could import opium from China Sorry, from India, mm-hmm. uh, and then sell it to China at a considerable profit. But by 1773, the British had become the leading suppliers of the Chinese market. Basically, the British East India Company established a monopoly on opium cultivation, 
particularly in Bengal, which they controlled. And they developed a, a new method of growing poppies cheaply and, and ramping it up. Like Good the old Taliban. industrial revolution approaches, like right. the Taliban was. Yeah, a little bit before the Taliban, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, other Western countries also joined in. Uh, the United States, uh, which also dealt with Turkish uh, opium as well as India. No, India wasn't the only place you could get opium where they had poppy plantations. But this leads to what you hinted at before, the, the famous or infamous opium wars of the 19th century. And I don't think a lot of people these days really remember the opium wars. I don't know that it gets taught a lot in the schools, but it's really, really uh, instructive around uh, instruction, instructive, instructional. Instructive. Uh, instructive, is that the right word? I guess. Well, fuck it, we'll go with that. Um, about British imperialism. Mm-hmm. So the first opium war started in 1842 when the Chinese started seizing British shipments of opium. Now, now right, remember... Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I apologize. Right before that, in 1838, the emperor figured out that somewhere between 4 and 12 million of his people were addicted to opium, and he wants something done. So he's going to start having people crack down on this. But this has truly become a problem for China, not that anybody else cares, but the emperor has finally set his sights on solving this problem. Yeah, so it had been illegal opium in China now for you know hundred plus years, mm-hmm. hundred and fifty years, give or take. Right. But the China but the British are still smuggling it in and, and making money out of it because they didn't give a fuck. Right. Now the short story the short version of the backstory as you indicated before is that the Europeans were addicted to Chinese luxury goods, tea, silk, porcelain but the Chinese didn't really care for anything coming back out of Europe. Literally nothing. Like, they yeah. Had, yeah. You got nothing. You got nothing we <laughs> need. We're nothing China, we motherfuckers. Want. We're superior. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they uh, they wrote a song about it. Australians, that's a classic, classic Australian band, Cold Chisel, uh, from their 1982 album Circus Animals. Jimmy Barnes, lead vocals there. Good Scotsman. Um, yeah, you got nothing I want, is what? what the Chinese said, except gold and silver. You were going to say something? 
Oh, just that. So anyway, so the, so it's 1838. The uh, emperor's got this big problem. He wants something done. So he is going to send down a special imperial commissioner, Lin Zishu, who is going to take troops with him because obviously they uh, they have to deal with these foreign devils. I mean, I mean Europeans. And what they what they, and I don't want to. I don't know how much you want to go into the first opium war, but basically he's able to back the foreigners into their little section that that they have with their factories, puts them under siege, is able to get their opium and destroys it, thinking this is what the emperor has told me to do, and now the problem is solved because I've intimidated these people and I've destroyed all their opium. Everything's going to be sunshine from now on. Yeah, before we get too far mm-hmm. ahead, yeah. I mean, I, I want to explain the, the, the roots of all of this. So, as I said, the Chinese didn't want any European products. They just wanted gold or silver. Now, the British East India ships didn't want to sail to China with gold and silver. It, it created imbalance in their trading. Right. Uh, so they filled their holds with opium from India. Mm-hmm. The other thing they did during this period, by the way, was begin to grow their own tea in India under right. uh, under um, in places under their control, like Darjeeling and Ceylon, aka modern Sri Lanka, where they could control the prices and the payment methods and basically uh, not have to deal with the Chinese. So that's why India tea now comes from India is because the British East India Company didn't want to, you know, were pissed off yeah. at the Chinese. Um, But by the late 18th century, opium was the world's largest traded commodity and Britain operated the world's largest drug cartel. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. Mm -hmm. The British Empire made its money on the slave trade and selling drugs. And destroying millions of lives in China, and I'm sure other places as well. Yeah, the wealth, the great wealth and power of the British Empire is based on those two things. Uh, the slave trade and the drug trade. That's how it became a huge empire. Anywho, um, by 1800, the Brits were exporting 200,000 pounds of opium a year to China. Jeez. But here's the thing. The British East India Company couldn't carry the opium into China officially because there was a ban. Chinese mm-hmm. emperor put a ban. Can't, so, they <laughs> so they had to get sneaky about it. Now, China had also sealed itself off from the world. Um, the way it worked... There was a thing called the Canton system where there was just uh, a single port in Canton Mm -hmm. where they allowed maritime trade. All the ships had to come through Canton. There was a lot of oversight, a lot of regulation, a lot of control. They allowed no diplomatic contact with the outside world. Basically, you know, like the Japanese had also done around this time, they blocked themselves off from the rest of the world, mostly because, well, I think, A, they thought they were superior to the rest of the world. B, they were um, a a little bit scared, and rightly so, of uh, European imperialism coming in and fucking shit up. Yeah. So they they blocked themselves off from from the world. Right. Now, um, the British Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, who was a good friend of the Duke of Wellington, so you already know that I don't like him, (laughs) <laughs> uh, demanded that the Chinese allow free trade. 
no, no. And the Chinese told them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> um, so what the British East India Company would do to get around the, the Canton system is they would farm out the last leg of the opium smuggling to what were known as country traders. These were basically private smugglers who would take the goods from the British East India Company into China. Sometimes they would take it all the way from India to China. Sometimes they would take it from East India Company ships, uh, uh, you know, somewhere close to China and just do that last leg. Um, So, you know, they were basically drug mules. They Mm. they would smuggle the drugs over the border. Yeah. Actually, sometimes the country traders would then sell the opium to other smugglers who would get it over the coast and smuggle it into the country. Mm Mm-hmm. So the, the, they would uh, sell it. The, the country traders would sell it to the smugglers in return for gold and silver, which the country traders would then give back to the British East India Company. So that's how they were able to get around the law. So illegal drug cartels using drug mules, exactly the same as we see happens today in you know how, how drugs get into the US from Mexico and other places, how they get into Australia. It's exactly the same thing, but the British basically invented it. Right. Using drug mules to get around the laws. Now, the British at the time justified their involvement in the opium trade mm-hmm. in exactly the same way that Al Capone justified <laughs> running bootleg ligger, bootleg ligger during Prohibition. They said, hey, we're just businessmen. You know, there's a demand. People want the drugs. We're just meeting the demand. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. It's called capitalism, bitches. If we don't, someone else will. Exactly. Now, again, this is the British government and the Crown yeah. making this argument. Yeah, we sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We, 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 it's illegal and we're selling it anyway. But, uh, you know, we're, hey, we're just fucking a businessman. Don't blame yeah. us. Yeah. Now, one of the world's largest companies today got started by selling smuggled opium. Mm. Jardine Matheson. Their turnover today is around $40 billion and they've diversified into retail, real estate, financial services, shipping, construction, hotels, you name it. But right. they got their state, their, their start in China selling illegal opium brought in by the East India Company. Uh, and if anyone else is a fan of James Clavell's Noble House series... Love the guy it. who wrote Shogun and Taipan. You love it? Oh, I me love too. it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I read all of his books when I was like 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Fucking loved them, man. Yeah. yeah. So the, the Noble House series is um, loosely based on the Jardines. Bunch of uh, Scottish guys building a, you know, yeah. trading house in Hong Kong, China and Hong Kong. Mm. So getting back to Lin Sexu. Um, just before the outbreak of the First Opium War, he uh, wrote a letter to Queen Victoria asking her to back the fuck off with the drug business. Oh, shit. They haven't made that into a movie with Dame Judi Dench yet. <laughs> I'm hoping that that'll be the next in the Thank Dame you. Judi Dench. Yeah. Fingers crossed. The... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's James Queen. It's no, it's Victoria and the drug mules. <laughs> How Queen Victoria built the British Empire 
by selling drugs and destroying the lives of millions of Chinese people. Anyway, Lynn, Lynn wrote her a letter um, th- that I've read. Have you read this letter, man? I uh, know. It's a great letter. It's a fucking great letter. Great letter. It starts off fairly diplomatic. He's like, oh, your majesty, you're wonderful. We think you're wonderful. We fucking love British and you and your crown. And, oh, you're so great. But then he goes, but can you just back the fuck off with the drug business? Here's a section from it. He lays out the Chinese position pretty clearly in this. We find that your country is distant from us, about 60 or 70,000 miles, that your foreign ships come hither, striving the one with the other for our trade, and for the simple reason of their strong desire to reap a profit. Now, out of the wealth of our inner land, if we take a part to bestow upon foreigners from afar, it follows that the immense wealth which the said foreigners amass ought, properly speaking, to be portion of our own native Chinese people. But what principle of reason, then, should these foreigners send in return a poisonous drug which involves in destruction those very natives of China. Without meaning to say that the foreigners harbour such destructive intentions in their hearts, we yet positively assert that from their inordinate thirst for gain, they are perfectly careless about the injuries they inflict upon us. And such being the case, we should like to ask what has become of that conscience which heaven has implanted in the breasts of all men. We have heard that in your own country, opium is prohibited with the utmost strictness and severity. This is a strong proof that you know full well how hurtful it is to mankind. Since then, you do not permit it to injure your own country. You ought not to have the injurious drug transferred to another country, and above all others, how much less to the inner land. Of the products which China exports to your foreign countries, there is not one which is not beneficial to mankind in some shape or other. There are those which serve for food, those which are useful, those which are calculated for resale, but all are beneficial. Has China, we should like to ask, ever yet sent forth a noxious article from its soil? Not to speak of our tea and rhubarb, things which your foreign countries could not exist a single day without, if we of the central land were to grudge you what is beneficial and not to compassionate your wants, then wherewithal could you foreigners manage to exist? Oh, snap. Pretty good, man. Yeah. Now, it's a pretty good description of imperialism. You're just, you're destroying our land and our people for the sake of profit and you don't really care. Right. Um, now... Later on in the letter, he gets a little bit uppity. Basically, says, "Do you know who you're fucking with? We're China, bitches. This we is the are gonna fucking kingdom. Yeah, sorry. We are gonna pull some kung fu shit on your asses." Um, he uh, he warns her that they're bringing in a new law. Any foreigner or foreigners bringing opium to the central land with design to sell the same, the principals shall most assuredly be decapitated oh. and the accessories strangled. And all property found on board the same ship shall be confiscated. So, fair warning, they're going to cut your heads off and strangle you. (laughs) And take all the shit and burn it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I imagine that didn't go over too well. 
Well, as you said, there with fair warning, um, and it was fair warning. It was like eighteen months later after he sent this letter, plenty of time that they finally yeah. the Chinese put this, they finally put this policy into practice. Yeah, and they started seizing opium imports, um, and the British weren't happy. So the British used the Royal Navy to attack the Chinese, and this is class. This is literally where the term gunboat diplomacy <laughs> comes from. That we discussed in our Cold War economics episodes, right? Right. Um, oh, really? You don't like uh, what we're doing? Well, talk to the gun. Talk to the gunboat. Talk to the Navy. Yeah. Now, when the Chinese started seizing the opium coming into the country, it added up to 20,000 chests, which is about 2.7 million pounds Worth of uh, opium back. That's in them. That's in like fucking eighteen forty two money. Right. It was about ninety five percent British and about five percent American. Special Emperor Commissioner Lin Zishu. You know he grabs up. He he grabs up all the uh, opium. He burns it. Uh, the foreign devils are put under siege. The British, like you said, bring in the navy. They pretty much bombard the Chinese coast. This is the first opium war. And the and the Chinese are totally unprepared for this militarily. And the British are able to dominate the situation, which is going to lead to the end of the war in the 1842 Treaty of Nanking, which is going to go totally Britain's way because now there's going to be more opium trade and the British are going to receive the gift of the city of Hong Kong. Britain is going to get most favored nation status and they want to be paid for all the damaged drugs. Um, the Queen says, we didn't take, we didn't destroy your drugs. The Chinese did. So the British uh, demand $21 million in compensation to, to be paid over three years. So the war, you know, China stood up for himself. They got slapped down by the, by the British. And now the British are even more wedged into, into China. Yeah, it turns out that locking yourself away from the world and uh, ignoring the Industrial Revolution doesn't end no. well uh, when you go up against one of these uh, Western powers. This is the beginning of what the Chinese refer to even to this day as a century of the century of humiliation. Mm-hmm. They were I mean they were, you know, quite proud and 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 deservedly so. Yeah. Uh very long history, massive empire, but they got their ass handed to them by the British uh in the first opium war. And, yeah, as you say, Britain got most favoured nation status. They got control of Hong Kong in perpetuity out of this. Um, they also, this indemnity of $21 million they forced Chinese to pay is about $500 million in today's Jeez. money. And that was a lot of money for a largely impoverished country and a bankrupt dynasty. The the Qing dynasty wasn't doing too well at this point, right. mostly because it, you know, um, it, it had this trade imbalance and, uh, it was selling a lot of stuff and getting it in, but you know they didn't really have a very good trade system worked out. Uh, and this gets back to the idea of the open door policy with China that we talked about in the Cold War series as well. I mean, England now has this lock on Chinese trade mm-hmm. uh, in 1842, which pisses off the rest of the world, in particular the Americans. And this is why we see the Americans in the early part of the 20th century really trying to negotiate an open-door policy into China so they can get some of that Chinese trade action out of the hands of the British. 
Uh, so anyway, there's a second opium war about 12 years later when the, the treaty came up for renegotiation. The, the British demands at this time uh, included opening all of China to British merchant companies, legalising the opium trade, exempting foreign imports from internal duties, uh, suppression of piracy, regulation of the coolie trade, coolies, uh, for people who don't know that term, are a form of indentured labour. So they're Mm. not quite slaves. You kind of pay them, but they can't not work for you. So they're kind of slaves, but they list... They get slaves that get a paycheck, basically. And at this time, during this time, a lot of Chinese labourers worked in British colonies in Singapore, Jamaica, British Malaya, British Guiana, Trinidad, Tobago, British Honduras. Um, And this also gets back to some of the issues in the Philippines that we mentioned um, in a previous episode. Um, But, yeah, so they, they wanted... Regulation of the coolie trade. They wanted permission for a British ambassador to reside in Beijing. Remember, China had no diplomatic right. uh, contact with the outside world. And they wanted English to be the preferred language of all treaties instead of Chinese. God. Arrogant. Quite reasonable demands, I think, <laughs> uh, on behalf of the British here. Uh, basically, they're trying to... Basically, we, we they're trying to turn China into another British province right. without saying as much. Yeah. Um, British the Chinese weren't going to just lay down for this, um, so they they sort of try and fight back. They feel like they're on better footing now. They seize a cargo ship called the Arrow on suspicion of piracy, but it happened to be flying a British flag, and all hell broke loose. The British started bombing Canton. Thousands were killed. The French, the Russians, and the Americans all got involved to support the British, mm-hmm. and uh, it didn't didn't go well again for the poor Chinese. Yeah, and, and just just to give you an idea of how important this is to Britain, right before the Second Opium War in 1854, Britain's imports from China were nine times greater than the exports to China, and London was already paying for the administration in Hong Kong, Singapore, and India, and obviously you have to increase your opium trade in, in order to uh, to compensate for that. So they have the second war. Again, the British, with, with all their other allies, beat the crap out of the Chinese. It leads to the Treaty of Tientsin in 1860, and again, the British completely dominate. They get what they want in this treaty. Five more ports are opened up for trade, and for the first time, the hinterland of China is open to the foreign devils. I mean, I mean to the traders. Uh, so again, they used to keep these people on the coast. You can only come to Canton a couple of times a year. And now, like you were saying, they have access to all of China. It is certainly not going China's way. And, and just keep in mind, because I was talking to Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast about this. When you see China today flex their most muscle, whether it's economically, politically, militarily, whatever, don't think that they they don't remember that century of shame, of humiliation, because they do. And they're making they're just making sure that's never going to happen again. You don't have to like it, but that's the way the world works. Yeah, exactly, man. Now, um, I mentioned the Americans got involved before. One of the great, actually two of the great American fortunes was made during this period running opium to China. Uh-huh. John Jacob Astor who was the first American multimillionaire, got his start with fur trading, but then diversified into opium trading into China. 
And of course, the other great American dynasty that made its money smuggling opium into China was run by Warren Delano, no. FDR's grandfather, no. who made the family fortune that way. Um, so married his daughter off to one of the Roosevelts. Right. And uh, boom, there you go. But yeah, it doesn't get talked a lot about in uh, the official Roosevelt histories. The Roosevelts didn't like to talk about it. But yeah, Warren Delano made a fortune smuggling opium. So there you go. Two of the great American fortunes, at the very least, made um, smuggling illegal drugs into China and then whitewashed. Then the the money gets whitewashed, the reputations get whitewashed, sanitized. It's all good. Anyway, back to the end of the Second Opium War. So um, the Chinese had to pay 8 million tails of silver to Britain and France. One tail is about 37.8 grams of silver. So 8 million tails would be about 302 million grams of silver or 302,000 kilograms of silver. Today's value, about 161 million US dollars. Um Britain, France, and Russia all were granted permanent diplomatic presences in Beijing. Britain acquired Kowloon next to Hong Kong. The opium trade was finally legalized. Christians were granted full civil rights, including the right to own property and the right to evangelize. So the bottom line here is that the opium problem in China was the result of the British and the Americans to a lesser extent, but mostly the British. Right, right. Profit At above, the start all, of the, above all, everything else. Sorry. Yeah, and the drug dealers. Britain's fortune was made by being drug dealers, basically. That's, you know, there were some other things, of course, but being drug, selling drugs, selling opium into China was a huge part of the, the might of the British Empire during this period. Um, at the start, and, and, and these, are the, these are the guys who fought Napoleon uh, on the basis that he was a bad guy. Meanwhile, they're uh, illegally smuggling opium into China and destroying the lives of millions of Chinese. At the start of the first opium war, the future British Prime Minister, William Gladstone, criticised it as a war more unjust in its origin, a war more calculated in its progress to cover this country with permanent disgrace. So it's not all of the Brits were for it, but enough were that it was a big thing. And Palm, and um, um, what's shoot? Sorry, uh, Gladstone also said. <clears throat> excuse me, Gladstone also said, in dread of the judgments of God upon England for our national inequity towards China. And that was in May of 1840. So again, he's like, all this is wrong, and I'm worried how we're going to be punished by the Almighty. Mm, I'm still waiting for them to be punished. Well, they lost uh, their empire. Yeah, yeah, but they're all right. They did okay. You're looking for some old, uh, now, old Testament punishment. Yeah, okay. I am. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Now, after China was defeated in the first war with Japan, 1894-1895, and they were weakened yet again, the British took advantage of, uh, you know, the sort of scramble to carve up the country and mm-hmm. forced... Another treaty, 
through on the Chinese government. This is where they got a 99-year lease of the new territories, which included Kowloon and Hong Kong. And that's how England did that. Oh, one other last Where thing. Where are we? Uh, mm, about an hour. One last You're thing about, about, about Gladstone. Yeah. The reason, well, several reasons, but one of the personal reasons that he was he was uh, upset about all this was that his sister Helen was an opium addict, and he saw what it did to her, did to her life, uh, probably did to her te- uh, teeth and face as well. But for him, it was a very personal experience because he could he saw how this was destroying someone that he loved. So again, he can just imagine that times in mil- you know millions in the Chinese, and he was this this wasn't just policy for him; this was personal as well. Indeed, well. Uh, no, we could go for another 10 minutes or we could wrap it up. What do you think? Uh, what do we, what you want to cover the, uh, the German, the heroin? Well, I we could, do, could. I, I could do 10 more minutes. I could do 10 more minutes. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's whip through this bit. We'll, we'll wrap this up. So that's the end of the opium wars. Now, morphine is another opium byproduct. It was first synthesized in 1874 by a guy called C.R. Wright, an English chemist, working in a medical school in London. Nothing much really happened with it, though, until about 23 years later when a German, Felix Hoffmann, working at Bayer Pharmaceutical Company in uh, Germany, came up with another way to synthesize it. 1895, Bayer started marketing it over the counter as a drug with the trademark name heroin. Uh, so it's basically morphine, diacetylmorphine is what heroin is. Now, the head of Bayer's research department came up with the name, apparently, based on the German heroisch, which means heroic, strong. So if Mm. you take heroin, you you feel strong, you feel heroic. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. So now, uh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, and of course they market it as it's a miracle drug. It's used to treat headaches, colds, other common ailments. Uh, women were prescribed for premenstrual syndrome, uh, hysteria, and obviously so-called female problems. But again, if you're not feeling good, if you just need to pick me up or whatever, boom, here, here's something from the Bayer Company. And of course, most of their customers were rich, upper-class individuals. How many times have we seen this already? Indeed. Now, morphine was already around, and it was a popular recre- recreational drug, but it was known to be addictive, and Bayer wanted to come... Bayer? Bayer, you're saying? Bayer? Bayer. Bayer. Wanted to come up with a, a non-addictive oh, sure. substitute to morphine, so they came up with heroin. <laughs> this thing gets off morphine sure. real quick. Might have wanted to do a little bit more research on that, but anyway. Yeah. Now... Another popular opium derivative in the 19th and 20th century was called laudanum, mm-hmm. uh, developed by a 16th century Swiss-German alchemist Paracelsus, a.k.a. Philippus Areolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. <laughs> That's... From now I'm on, go th- I want to be Bombastus. Yeah, Philippus yeah. Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. <laughs> wow. Otherwise known as... Mr. Boombastic, 
Watch your one as a bombastic, fantastic, realistic lover. Shaggy! Mr. Lover, Lover, my lover. Mr. Lover, Lover. Mmm, girl. Mr. Lover, Lover, my lover. Mr. Lover, Lover. She called me Mr. Boombastic. Say me fantastic. Touch me now, my back. She says I'm Mr. Boombastic. Yeah, we don't have time for that. No. Um, so, <laughs> put my pants he, back on. Hold on. He, he was one of the uh, key medical pioneers of the Renaissance. Uh, d- d- discovered that you could take alkaloids and and uh, in, like in opium and and uh, dissolve them in alcohol rather than in water. Right. Experimented with uh, various sort of concoctions. Came up with one that was good at reducing pain, called it laudanum, which is from the Latin verb laudare, to praise. You know, you get lauded for right. your achievements, laudanum, right. praise, feels good. Um, and it was used for a whole bunch of things, as you say, cough suppressant, analgesic. And until the early 20th century, it was sold without a prescription, over the counter for menstrual cramps, vague aches, given to kids, babies. Anyone who's watched Deadwood, it's what uh, Doc Cochran gives Alma Garrett, uh, like in this clip. Wait for it. I've replenished your supply of medicine. Thank you, Doctor. I'm very grateful for your attention. I only wish my symptoms would subside. If I were to tell you that I would see to your requirements, whether you had symptoms or not, do you suppose that would help you to heal? I don't know what you mean. I believe you do, madam. I believe we understand each other. There are people in this camp in genuine need of my attention. Make this adequate to your purposes for the next several days. Thank you, doctor. (laughs) I <laughs> love mm. Doc Cochran. He's not taking a shit. Yeah. Bitch, you're addicted to drugs. Stop pretending that you're sick. Just tell me you need some drugs. I'll give you the drugs. Yeah, move on. Or anyway, yeah. during the um, sort of romantic Victorian eras, there was a lot of laudanum used in Europe and the United States. Mary Todd Lincoln, Aww. for example, wife of the uh, President Abraham Lincoln, was a laudanum addict. And that was before her husband got shot in the head of the theater. <laughs> After that, oh, my God. She doubled she... up. Did, oh man, I don't know. Did she did she live outlive him I, or not? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Hey, did she survive him? Uh, blah 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 blah. Yeah, she witnessed his fatal shooting, right. and then she was involuntarily institutionalized for psychiatric disease ten years after her husband's murder. Mm. That's 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 nasty. Sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but uh, in the English poet. Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, famously wrote his poem Kubla Khan mm-hmm. in the middle of an opium-induced haze. Oh, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Sunless mm. sea. Um, the, the story is that he got fucked up on opium, had this dream, woke up, Started writing. That's great. Reckons he could have written. Yeah, he had this like massive plan for three hundred lines of this poem. Got about fifty lines into it. Uh, somebody came and knocked on his door, and he got interrupted. Went and did some more opium. Came back, couldn't remember the poem, oh. and that was it. 
Uh, what could have yeah. been? Um, now, laudanum was uh, initially a working-class drug because it was cheaper than a bottle of gin or wine. Wow. And you were able to... Yeah, and, and you were able to get it over the counter, wasn't taxed as an alcoholic beverage, was treated as medication. Um, so it was, it was you know, working class people didn't have to get drunk. They just, you know, take some heroin, basically. Um, and laudanum and heroin were both prescribed by doctors uh, up until the early 20th century for all sorts of stuff, as we said. So it's not hard to work out why there are a lot of addicts. Right. Blame the Negroes, blame the Mexicans, blame, Chinese. you know, degraded yeah. white women. <laughs> Chinese. Basically, people were getting given to it from, from, the, from when they were babies. Here, have some opium. What's wrong with you? Take some opium. Get it in here. It's good stuff. Well, you got period pain? Get some opium. Got a oh, cough? Yeah. Take some opium. Yeah. You know, you're, you're falling Dysentery. asleep in the middle of the oh. day? Take some opium. Yeah. Yeah. Cocaine and opium was given to everyone. Um, now, and, and also morphine was given to the wounded during the Civil War right. in America. It's estimated that uh, after the Civil War, there were thousands of veterans that were addicted to the drug and, of course, you know, went looking for it after the war was over. Um, then you had your Chinese immigrants who came in to build America and Australia and other places that, that were addicted to opium, thanks to the British. A third, uh, you know, heroin, when it was introduced, uh, was sort of a, uh, introduced as a cure for morphine addiction. Mm-hmm. So, oh, you're addicted to morphine? <laughs> uh, have the mor- have some heroin. We got That'll covered. fix you up. Yeah. Right yeah. as rain. Right as rain. <laughs> No, you'll never have to see me again. No, don't come back in a week or in two days asking for some more. You're cured. Congratulations. They come back six months later. Now I'm addicted to heroin. Oh, hey, look. I tell you what, I got the cure for you. Here's a crack pipe. Have the crack pipe. You'll be fine. Don't, 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 don't thank me. Just pay it's great. Me. So, look, it was genuinely a problem. There were all these people that weren't wanting to get addicted. Like, they, they, they weren't taking drugs for... The reasons of wanting to, you know, for escapist reasons, my life sucks, I'm miserable, I'm working all day, I'm poor, give me some drugs. It was, they were given drugs by medical professionals or just buying it over the counter for, they were were being told, yeah, this is good shit. Um, And then they were getting, they were getting addicted. So, but how many actual addicts there were is the subject of a lot of debate. Mm. There was a report that came out in 1878, trying to determine the extent of drug addiction in the United States. It's entitled The Opium Habit in Michigan. (laughs) The author estimated there were 7,763 drug addicts in the state. Um, About six years later, there was another survey done of pharmacists in Iowa that determined there was about 5,732 addicts in Iowa. Right. So if those figures reflected a national pattern... There were probably somewhere between 180,000 to 250,000 addicts wow. in the country at the time. Now, the population of the USA in 1900, Ray, was. Can you guess? Uh, 110 million. I don't know. Not bad. 76 million. 76 million. Um, now, how many of those would have been adults? Like uh, half, let's say. Yeah. Well, populations normally about a half adults, two the third to a half. I don't know. So about. So 30. anyway, let's say there was. Yeah. 
35, let's say there's about 35, 38 million adults and about 200,000 addicts. Um, so it's not a lot. Um, 235,000 times 100. Yeah. Ha, maybe half of 1%. So it's not like, you know, maybe is that a lot? I don't know. Half of 1% of the population addicts. There was a, a study done in Vermont in 1900 that indicated that approximately 3.3 million doses of opium were sold monthly. <sighs> which was enough to supply each adult in Vermont. So the entire population of Vermont was <laughs> smoking opium. But but if that's the amount for just Vermont, for just one state, that 250,000 you quoted might be a low number. I mean, that's that's just incredible. Well, well, well hold on. There's a, there's, a, there's a difference here between people using it and people being addicts. You can use opium and not be addicted to it. Mm. Okay. Right? I, I, I assume. Don't, I don't know. I assumed you couldn't. I don't, think every, I don't think everybody who takes drugs ends up addicted to them. Gotcha. Uh, I think addiction is a combination of, of a physical addiction and a psychological slash emotional slash spiritual need for the relief. Gotcha. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who use heroin, use cocaine, use marijuana, on a casual basis, the same way they use booze. Right. You know, uh, um, like you and I, I mean, we can have a drink and stop. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I have a two-drink self-enforced limit on most occasions. Uh, if it's a very, very, very long night of drinking, I might have three. But usually two glasses and I'm done. I'm like, right. nah, that's it. I'm good. Um, so and, and, and not everybody can do that. Some people want to get drunk. Some people right. want to get fucked up. Some That's people want to, yeah. you know, yeah. So I think I think it's the same with with drugs. I think there's a lot of people who can use it and put it down. You know, they can take a hit once a week, once a month, whatever it is, and they're good. I don't think everyone's an addict. Teddy Roosevelt appointed his first uh, the first ever United States Opium Commissioner in 1908. This is Hamil- Dr. Hamilton Wright. We mentioned in an earlier episode. Wright said, of all the nations of the world, the United States consumes most habit-forming drugs per capita. Oh, God. Now, and was he that based opium off research, I wonder? No, Sorry, he just pulled that out of his ass, I think. Yeah. I don't know. He called opium the most pernicious drug known to humanity. Mm. Um, now, at the time, he was a physician and a pathologist who was most famous for discovering the pathogen... That was the cause of beriberi, which is a nasty condition. Unfortunately, it was later discovered that beriberi was caused by a vitamin deficiency, not a pathogen. So, yeah, he got that wrong. (laughs) But uh, anyway, he was famous. Uh, He led the 13-nation conference at the International Opium Commission in Shanghai in 1909. Mentioned this on an earlier episode. Mm -hmm. This is something that Teddy Roosevelt sort of initiated. Right. uh, partly after they they took over the Philippines and they go, well, fucking all these Chinese coolies are causing an opium problem uh, in the Philippines and we now own it, so now it's our problem. Mm-hmm. But also it, it had other issues, but I'll get into that in a second. No, other, other causes. Um, officially, they wanted to tackle the opium trade. Oh, opium's a bad thing. Right? But in reality, President Taft, who was the new president by then, right. who was made of Teddy Roosevelt's, 
they saw the Opium Commission as a good way of, of causing problems for Britain in China. Ah. Now, uh, remember, uh, America was trying to increase its trade with China. Britain still had a pretty big lock. Britain and Russia and, and France in particular had a pretty big lock on China. Mm-hmm. And uh, China had a big opium problem. The British had caused that. So the Americans are trying to use opium here, not for any true health purpose or morality <laughs> purpose. Right. It's for trade. Go, oh, well, if we, if we can be seen mm-hmm. to be... Helping China with the fix their opium problem will get into their good books a little bit more, and we might be able to make some friends and negotiate some good trade agreements out of it. Now, the problem with that was, like you said just a minute ago, the United States had its own opium problem, which is why you have to appoint a commissioner. Right? You could get you. Could, not only should you work on it, but you need to be seen by China that you're working on it. So when you do approach them, you can say, "Yeah, we, we've got this too. We've got a guy in charge. We're working on it. Maybe we can join together." I mean, again, it's a brilliant way to get your foot in the door and hopefully cause Britain a lot of headaches in the future. That, that's pretty clever. Also, keep in mind that. Uh, opium wasn't a big business for Americans at this stage, mm-hmm. so hurting the opium trade's not really going to hurt America. Right. But it's going to hurt some of their international competitors, and that's always a good thing. If you can, if you can, and this is it's a good lesson in this. Whenever you see a country getting behind something like this, it's interesting to pull apart the strings and go, well. Who's it hurting to do this and, and who are they in competition with? Is it hurting them really? Is it hurting their competitors? Qui bono? Who benefits? Etc. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all of this led to the signing of the International Opium Convention in 1912, the first international drug control treaty. Oh, by the way, remember um, Dr. Hamilton Wright? He gets fired soon after for alcohol abuse. <laughs> See, I told so- you he was an expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He's going, opium is bad. (laughs) Quick, where's my bourbon? (laughs) Now, the treaty was signed by Germany, the United States, China, France, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Persia, Portugal, Russia, Siam, 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 Siam. a.k.a. Thailand, and Sam I am, oh, Sam I am, (laughs) eggs and green ham. That's what I was thinking. And the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now... Remember how the British had fought two wars to allow them to import opium into China and they forced China to legalise opium? Right. Well, here they are 60 years later and they're now against the opium trade. Aww. So they bled China Why dry you... and now they're turning <laughs> turning the, uh, to another page? I don't know. Why would that be? Well, it's because they're almost out of the opium business. Ah. Um, Trade had stopped almost completely by 1917 for a number of reasons. World War I was part of it. Another reason was uh, as a result of the opium wars, uh, people started growing opium in China, which kind of killed the import trade to a large extent. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the Chinese did a deal with India and said, hey, listen, can you stop the fucking poppy production? And the Indians went, oh, okay. So there was deals done there. Basically, long story short, 
it was a, a, a much smaller part now of Britain's economy, mm. so they were happy to so they could afford a to, ban yeah. it and b demonise the people who were still in the business before they made too much money out of it and could become a threat. <laughs> Damn. Damn. Those people know how to play the game. Kind of like how the United States used import tariffs to protect its domestic manufacturers for 100 years. Mm-hmm. No, you can't. No, we, we can't import cheaper shit from... China or, or Russia or anywhere in the world, you know, Latin America. No, 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 no. You have to buy American. Um, but then when it wants to export its shit to other countries, it starts going on and on about free trade, how import tariffs are the work of the devil, etc., etc. Good for us while we are making ourselves powerful. Once we're rich and powerful, no, no, no one else can yeah. do the same thing because that's immoral. Yeah. By the way, 2010, British Prime Minister David Cameron visited China. Mm-hmm. Do you know what he wore to honour Remembrance Day on the lapel of his jacket? No. A poppy. Oh, God. That's tacky in the extreme. People in China asked him to remove it because it was uh, insulting and tasteless after what the British had done to China, and he refused because... He's a cunt. He's a cunt. <laughs> no. Clearly doesn't own one of our coffee mugs. The uh, opium treaty that everyone signed said the contracting powers shall use their best endeavours to control or to cause to be controlled all persons manufacturing, importing, selling, distributing and exporting morphine, cocaine and their respective salts as well as the buildings in which these persons carry such an industry or trade. Now, when into force globally in 1919 after it gets incorporated into the Treaty of Versailles after World War One. And it's really not a coincidence, I think, that within 20 years of the end of the opium trade, Mm -hmm. the British more or less packed up their bags and left India. Uh, if If there's nothing in it for them, then why be there? Exactly. When the opium trade is gone, the British left India. Yes, World War II and the end of their economic ability. There's a lot of other things involved, but... Also, one of the things I think doesn't get talked about enough, uh, except if you read Indian historians, Indian historians talk about this a lot, uh, the connection between Britain leaving and the end of the opium trade. Yes, Gandhi, blah, 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 whatever. But really, they were like, fuck, well, we're not selling in opium anymore. So what else have we got here? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. I tea? just wanted to mention. We can buy their tea. Yeah, to, mm. I just this would be the, I know we're about to wrap up. I just want to mention the International Opium Convention of 1912, signed by all those countries that you mentioned. Um, in addition to opium and morphine, which were already under extensive international discussion, the Hague Convention also included two new substances that were becoming problems. One, you said cocaine and heroin. So again, this this is going out. This is expanding. The countries are starting to talk to each other. They're recognizing they have a problem, but only to a certain degree. So, again, we'll have to wait to see what happens in the future. Yeah, and the primary objective of the convention was to make it difficult to export this stuff. It Mm. wasn't about prohibition or criminalization of the use of drugs. It was just about making it difficult to sell it and ship it. Now, the United States ended up pulling out of this because they were moving more towards 
prohibitionist approaches. Mm-hmm. Of course, 1920, they started the prohibition of alcohol with the religious Puritans who set out to eradicate all stimulants, as we talked about in our earlier episodes in this, including they were trying to ban tobacco and caffeine. They wanted to get rid of all Damn. stimulants. The Narcotic Drugs Import and Export Act of 1922, also referred to as the Jones-Miller Act, mm-hmm. led to the establishment of the Federal Narcotics Control Board, which was set up to oversee the import and export, primarily of opiates, but also other psychoactive drugs like cocaine. Right. Um, uh, but, of course, none of this stuff stopped drug users. Now, in 1924, in the Baltimore Sun, Commander Hobson, who we talked about in our Prohibition episodes, mm-hmm. um, was saying that more than a million Americans were addicted to heroin. Many of them, he said, were young boys and girls of a tender age. The average age of a heroin addict, according to Hobson, was 22. And he claimed now that 75% of all serious crimes were committed under the influence of heroin. Damn. Now, remember, about six or seven years ago, the same Hobson was saying that nearly all criminals were under the influence of alcohol. (laughs) When they committed their crimes. (laughs) But now, prohibition's in effect. So there's no Uh, game in town bitching about alcohol. So he had to find something else to bitch about. So now he's just basically taken the same script (laughs) and said, oh, it's heroin. Heroin's (laughs) now the problem. And other drugs, but mostly heroin. He referred to heroin users as the snow gang, which I thought was actually Barry and Stan must have come up with that. <laughs> you know, see, he's nearly 50, Hobson. Um, right. He was unemployed. Pro- prohibition was in full swing. So he's looking around for a new greatest evil right. to, to, you know, get paid to give speeches about. Yeah. And he goes after heroin. Now, he wrote a number of books, uh, Narcotic Peril in 1925, The Modern Pirates, Exterminate Them in 1931, Mm -hmm. and Drug Addiction, A Malignant Racial Cancer in 1933. He was a big fan of speaking on the radio, getting in front of civic groups. Um, He founded something called the International Narcotic Education Association, lobbied all of his former congressional colleagues. Remember, this is the guy that was like a fucking hero in the Spanish, Spanish war because yeah. he well, deliberately... He, he, he got captured sunk by his the own Spanish. Ship. He got, yeah, he got captured by the Spanish. Yeah. And according to Trump, he doesn't like heroes who are captured. He likes heroes who are not captured. So... Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he sunk his own ship, got captured. They negotiated a release and he was a hero. Yeah. Anyway, so he's... Uh, and he ended up in Congress kissing babies, that kind of stuff. <laughs> So, yeah, he took a lot of this fear-mongering rhetoric from his prohibition speeches, just changed the word alcohol to heroin, did a find and replace. By the man, by the way, the best man at his wedding was Nikola Tesla. Get out of here. Which is weird because I got a lot of lot of respect for Tesla. I don't know why Tesla was involved with this douchebag. Well, Hobson was a anyway, hero, like you said. So, yeah. Modern studies suggest that by 1924, about 200,000 individuals at most were addicted to heroin, which is less than 1% of the population. Right. But the fear-mongering was in full swing. Uh, 1924, New York Police Deputy Commissioner reported that 94% 
of those addicted to drugs uh, arrested for criminal activity were using heroin. The head physician at Sing Sing, uh, also in 1924, claimed that 95% of the men in his prison were heroin addicts. Mm. It sounds a bit much. But here's the thing, right? Yeah. Banning drugs doesn't stop people from using them, as we know. Right. Same with alcohol. Banned alcohol didn't stop people from using it. They just found other ways to get their hands on it, uh, which had to be illegal ways, because people want stimulants. They want to relax. They want to escape the drudgery of life. And, of course, where there's a market, there will always be people who are ready to supply that market, from the British government through to Pablo Escobar. The sale of heroin, along with cocaine and alcohol, ended up in the hands of organised crime. So instead of addressing the root of the problem, Mm -hmm. the desire people have to get chemical stimulation or chemical relaxation, the government just tried to remove the symptom of the problem. Uh. That never works. It's like telling kids not to masturbate (laughs) or telling... Did work on me. People who live in the South not to have sex with farm animals. It never works. You have to address the... Address the root cause. And I want to finish with Rat Park. Now, you ever heard of Rat Park? Uh, I've heard of uh, the singers, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Frank Sinatra, that Rat Pack. Rat, that was the Rat Pack, not the Rat Park. Right? Uh, I just thought you were park. talking funny. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be offensive. <laughs> thought, it was, thought it was my accent. Yeah, sorry. The Rat Park experiment was conducted in the late 1970s by Canadian psychologist Bruce Alexander. Now, his hypothesis was that drugs don't cause addiction. Mm-hmm. That addiction is got more to do with the living conditions that you're in. It's not an addictive property of the drug itself. It's a, it, it's a property of your lifestyle, what's going on in your life. Right. So what he did is he built this big lab called Rat Park. It was massive, um, and he broke it into several different um, areas. Mm-hmm. There were 16 to 20 rats of both sexes in Rat Park. They had all the usual thing. They had food and balls and and wheels to play on, enough space for mating. But what they did is initially the the rats could drink from two dispensers, Mm -hmm. which recorded, each dispenser recorded how much each rat drank. Now, one dispenser just had plain tap water. The other dispenser had a morphine solution in it. Now, when rats were placed in really tiny cages, like just the size of their body, so they were cramped up, they were taken out of the good fun park with all the food and the balls and the wheels and the stuff. They were put in a tiny little cage. Mm -hmm. They tended to drink the morphine solution. Right. But when they were placed back in the nice, roomy, fun-time Disneyland park, (laughs) they chose the water. They still had access to the morphine, but they chose the water. That's cool. That's intense. They They were having their whatever expectations or stimuli met from their surroundings. They didn't need the drugs. They were happy. They didn't have to search that out. That's impressive. Now, rats that were kept in the tiny cages who chose the morphine drip after they were taken back out and put back into the happy time cage, if they were addicted to the morphine, they should have kept going back to the morphine drip, but they didn't. Yeah. They went back to the water drip wow. when their living conditions were improved. 
which raises a bunch of questions about the nature of addiction and its relationship to living conditions. Now, I should say that people have tried to replicate this experiment mm. and, ha- and have failed. Right. It, it hasn't been replicated. So maybe it's bullshit, but uh, it's worth, worth consideration. Right. What is the relationship between people's innate happiness and the quality of their life and their need to get fucked up. Right. So all of that brings us back to Harry the Gunslinger and Slinger and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. As we mentioned way back in the dawn of our series, in 1930, Mm -hmm. Harry was made the head of the new department of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Thanks to his father-in-law, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, and his original brief was to police the laws against using cocaine and heroin. And that is where we will pick it up in our next episode on the War on Drugs. Let me read a final review before we go. This is from an Australian reader who... Uh, I think we read out a review of this person uh, last week in the Cold War show. He must be doing the doing the rounds. Uh, Good for him. S, S upside down V O T T O Z. Yes. You know, you know who you are, sir or madam. Right. Yeah. Uh, buckle up. The boys get political. Twenty five plus hours on the Syrian war, gun control, and the war on drugs so far. A fairly provocative name for a podcast that is mainly dishing common sense with just a hint of rage against the machine. I think Cam wanted the argument with iTunes over the name. Plenty of facts. I think the conclusions are well backed up. If not enough to convince everyone, certainly enough to make the average person think on the topics. In this modern age, getting people to think for themselves on subjects rather than be spoon-fed by a Silicon Valley algorithm or Russian bot center is an achievement larger than it should be two thumbs up. Thank you, Snottos. Um, <laughs> send us an email, another email with your address yeah. and on top of the Cold War one when you get to that. We will send you another thank you gift yeah. and try not to send you two of the same thing, but maybe we will mm. because you're being greedy. Um, that is the end of the episode. Get back to your life, people. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark.